Hi, everyone, and welcome to Becoming Lincoln. Episode 23, More Than Ordinary Prejudice. Near the end of his life, Henry Clay told a friend, only half-jokingly, that he had emptied an apothecary looking for relief from his tuberculosis. The 75-year-old spent his days racked with pain and his nights trying to sleep between fits of coughing. To another friend, Clay said, quote, I welcome death, but I do not desire an exciting one. The senator's public career had ended, and he was content to enjoy the adulation that greeted the Compromise of 1850, the last major effort of his life. Facing war between an uncompromising white Southern elite and a president who frustrated their extortion attempts, Clay proposed a plan he hoped would give something to whites in each section, including a slavery ban in California and a draconian new fugitive slave law. Clay could not get his bill through Congress, and it took the death of President Zachary Taylor and the efforts of Senator Stephen Douglas to make the proposals law. What passed looked less like a compromise and more like a surrender to slaveholders. The new Fugitive Slave Act not only authorized the kidnapping of Americans based on the color of their skin, it denied them jury trials where they could prove they were free. Special commissioners who heard their cases got paid $5 for releasing the accused and $10 for sending them into slavery. Clay, a slaveholder himself, seemed unconcerned by this assault on the law. He gladly accepted the laurels thrown at him. Clay's return to Ashland, his estate in Kentucky, was, quote, like the triumphant procession of a Roman commander after victory, as Clay biographer James Clotter writes. The Kentucky legislature gave him a deafening ovation when he came to address them, the seeming savior of the nation. Clay even suggested that northern opposition to the fugitive slave law could drive him out of the Whig Party, the party he created, and into a new political organization devoted to protecting the Compromise. If that were necessary, Clay said, quote, I announce myself, in this place, a member of that Union Party, whatever may be its component elements. Like Clay, elites around the country chose to believe the Compromise settled the slavery question. Abraham Lincoln, at first, was one of them. A friend later claimed that Lincoln privately called the Fugitive Slave Act ungodly, but he never made these criticisms public. On July 6, 1852, a week after Clay died, Lincoln stood before a large crowd in the chamber of the Illinois House of Representatives to eulogize the man who had been his political idol. After going through Clay's life, Lincoln spoke of the late senator's principles. These, he said, were marked by, quote, a deep devotion to the course of human liberty, a strong sympathy with the oppressed everywhere, and an ardent wish for their elevation. Lincoln went on to say, quote, he loved his country partly because it was his own country, but mostly because it was a free country. And he burned with a zeal for its advancement, prosperity, and glory, because he saw in such the advancement, prosperity, and glory of human liberty, human right, and human nature. 
Lincoln also said that Clay addressed, quote, the late slavery question and quoted a Democratic newspaper that said Clay had, quote, exercised the demon which possessed the body politic and gave peace to a distracted land. But what of the men, women, and children, this lover of liberty, this man for a crisis, held against their will? Lincoln tried to argue that this wasn't Clay's fault, and that he had been, quote, cast into life in a land where, quote, slavery was already widespread and deeply seated. Lincoln continued, quote, He did not perceive, as I think no wise man has perceived, how it could be at once eradicated without producing a greater evil, even to the cause of human liberty itself. One could question Clay's commitment to liberty when considering his attitude toward African Americans. Clay once said, quote, Where does the black man enjoy an equality with his white neighbor in social and political rights? In none. Nowhere. As to social rights, they are out of the question. In no city, town, or hamlet throughout the entire land is he regarded as on an equal footing with us. To Clay, as to so many other white Americans, African Americans were aliens to whom they owed nothing. This led Clay to an idea as key to his American system as tariffs, internal improvements, and a national bank, pressuring African Americans to leave the country of their birth. Clay argued that African Americans could bring, quote, the rich fruits of religion, civilization, law, and liberty to their native soil, which Clay identified as Africa, not the United States. Clay said, quote, May it not be one of the great designs of the ruler of the universe, thus to transform an original crime into a signal blessing to that most unfortunate portion of the globe. Lincoln gave his enthusiastic approval to this impractical, unwieldy, and thoroughly racist project known as colonization. He said it would address what he called, quote, the troublesome presence of free Negroes. Lincoln continued, quote, This suggestion of the possible ultimate redemption of the African race and African continent was made 25 years ago. Every succeeding year has added strength to the hope of its realization. May it indeed be realized. Pharaoh's country was cursed with plagues, and his hosts were drowned in the Red Sea for striving to retain a captive people who had already served them more than 400 years. May like disasters never befall us. Lincoln was neither the first nor the last white American to harbor these views. But Lincoln knew many black men and women in Springfield. Maria Vance worked in Lincoln's home. William Fleurville, Lincoln's barber, hired him as an attorney. William Donegan made Lincoln's shoes and, in his spare time, shuttled fugitive slaves to Canada. We can only imagine what these individuals would have thought had they heard Lincoln declare them a troublesome presence. Even Lincoln's more admirable qualities, like his lifelong opposition to slavery, were rooted in this view of the African-American as other, a belief stretching back to the colonial era. In its casual dehumanization of fellow Americans, Lincoln's eulogy for Henry Clay shows how typical Abraham Lincoln was for the time, 
and how far he was from understanding who his countrymen were. Abraham Lincoln was always anti-slavery, and he never seems to have ever reconsidered this position. His criticisms of slavery became sharper with time. In personal notes written in the 1850s, Lincoln wrote, quote, The most dumb and stupid slave that ever toiled for a master does constantly know that he is wronged. So plain that no one, high or low, ever does mistake it, except in a plainly selfish way. For although volume upon volume is written to prove slavery a very good thing, we never hear of the man who wishes to take the good of it by being a slave himself. In another note, Lincoln attacked arguments that tried to prove that A, quote, may of right enslave B, always coming around to the conclusion that by the same argument, B could enslave A. If the reason was skin color, Lincoln wrote, quote, by this rule, you are to be slave to the first man you meet with a fairer complexion than your own. If the argument was intellect, Lincoln continued, then any man was subject to a smarter man. Finally, Lincoln tackled brutal, self-justifying nihilism. He wrote, quote, If you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Added to Lincoln's antipathy towards slavery was a view of white Southerners as weak and lazy. When he first met his colleague Ward Hill Lamon, a native of Virginia, in the late 1840s, he said, quote, You Virginians shed barrels of perspiration while standing off at a distance and superintending the work the slaves do for you. It is different with us. Here, it is every fellow for himself, or he doesn't get there. But Lincoln and many other white Americans tended to see slavery as a burden imposed upon them and not a crime in progress. In that view, African Americans were not victims of oppression, but an unwelcome reminder of the mistakes of past generations. As free men and women became trapped in the gears of the Fugitive Slave Act, some Americans mounted a fierce resistance. But Lincoln, despite his private misgivings, tried to present the Whigs as the willing defenders of this monstrosity. In a speech for Whig presidential candidate Winfield Scott in 1852, Lincoln claimed that Democratic presidential nominee Franklin Pierce opposed the Fugitive Slave Act to recover free soil votes in New York. Lincoln said, quote, His Southern allies will continue to bluster and pretend to disbelieve the report, but they would not, for any consideration, have him contradict it. And he will not contradict it. Mark me, he will not contradict it. Outside slavery, Lincoln showed little interest in African-American issues. He hardly mentioned blacks in his public speeches before 1854 and did not view African-Americans as citizens. In this, Lincoln was very much in the mainstream of white Illinois opinion. The state was notoriously anti-black. As early as 1813, the territorial legislature banned free African-Americans from entering Illinois. It ordered those who did so to be whipped 39 times if they did not leave within 15 days. Further apartheid laws followed after statehood. 
interracial marriage was banned. Blacks could not give testimony in court. Until the Illinois Supreme Court ended the practice in 1845, blacks could be held in indentures that differed little from slavery. As late as 1839, Illinois assessed slaves for tax purposes. As we'll see, slaveholders felt perfectly secure taking their slaves into Illinois through the mid-1840s. The historian Zabina Eastman, writing in the 1880s, sharply attacked early Illinois as the, quote, bloodhound of the whole slave region. He wrote, quote, To Illinois belongs the dishonor of having been the first to make a law which made it a crime to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to shelter the strange, or protect the fugitive from oppression. Hiram Beckwith, an attorney who practiced with Lincoln, later remembered antebellum Illinois as a place where anyone who saw slavery as an evil was, quote, regarded as a disturber of the peace and liable to be pelted with rotten eggs, if not subjected to severe bodily harm. One Illinois correspondent wrote angrily to the New York Tribune in 1845, quote, If a man happens to have a dark complexion, it is prima facie evidence that he is guilty of a crime. If, through ignorance, want of friends, or other causes, he fails of producing such proof of his freedom, he of course is thrown into jail as a slave to await the coming of his master, being, in the meantime, minutely described in a public advertisement. White hysteria reached its height in 1848, when Illinois called a convention to consider a new state constitution. The convention approved a provision banning blacks from voting, but members from the southern part of the state wanted an additional measure banning black immigration. Some Whigs, like Ninian Edwards, Lincoln's brother-in-law, and Stephen Logan, his old partner, opposed the measure and managed to get the ban on black immigration placed separately before the voters. The Constitution, with the prohibitions on black suffrage, passed with nearly 80% of the vote. The ban on black immigration got 70% of the vote statewide. In Springfield, it got 84%. Lincoln, who was serving in Congress, did not participate in any public debates about the measures. But he never said anything critical about the anti-black provisions. In 1853, after a few years of fighting, the Illinois General Assembly passed a new black code. It banned any African-American from entering and staying in the state for more than 10 days. Those who did were subject to imprisonment, fines, and the possibility of being auctioned off for work. Illinois was not alone in this hysteria. Indiana passed a new constitution in 1851 that banned African-Americans from the Hoosier state. Two years later, it forbade anyone who was one-eighth black from giving testimony in court. Ohio had an apartheid law from 1803 to 1849, when free soil legislators forced changes to it. But Illinois stood out. A Kentuckian who settled in the state said, quote, We are men who have come here from southern and slaveholding states. We are men who have seen the evils of a Negro population. We came here to escape them, and we wish to prevent the increase within this state of that class of population even more vicious and degraded than even slaves. Free Negroes. 
James Davis, in his book Frontier, Illinois, writes that enforcement of the 1853 Black Code was sporadic and encountered significant resistance in some corners of the state. The general prosperity of Illinois before the Civil War also seems to have dulled the darker impulses of whites. But the oppression did its work. Illinois' recorded free black population was 7,628 on the eve of the Civil War, a small community in a state that passed 1.7 million residents in 1860. Still, Lincoln crossed paths with a number of black Illinoisans. Historian Brian Dirk writes that Lincoln represented no more than two dozen black clients in his 24-year legal career. But as Sidney Blumenthal writes, Lincoln was one of the few attorneys in Illinois who would defend fugitive slaves or those accused of harboring fugitives, a crime that could lead to a $500 fine and six months in prison. In 1841, Lincoln took a case involving Nance Leggins Costley, a black woman who had been acquired by Nathan Cromwell, a wealthy landowner in Illinois, the state's anti-slavery constitution notwithstanding. Leggins Costley refused to go to Cromwell and fought for her freedom for more than 13 years. Cromwell later gave Leggins Costley to David Bailey for a promissory note worth $376. Bailey was an abolitionist and apparently intended to free Leggins Costley. Cromwell died in St. Louis while on a business trip, and his estate sued Bailey over the promissory note, with the intention of placing Leggins Costley back in slavery. Lincoln, representing Bailey, argued before the Illinois Supreme Court that the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, which banned slavery in Illinois, drained the promissory note of legal standing. The court ruled in favor of Leggins Costley, with Justice Stephen Douglas concurring. The court wrote, quote, it is a presumption of the law in the state of Illinois that every person is free without regard to color. The sale of a free person is illegal. The case set an important precedent. Lincoln also secured the release of a fugitive slave in 1846 and successfully defended a man accused of harboring fugitives that same year. His partner, William Herndon, a self-identified abolitionist, also took up fugitive slave cases. Blumenthal quotes one man who said, quote, Go to Lincoln. He's not afraid of an unpopular case. When I go to a lawyer to defend an arrested fugitive slave, other lawyers refuse me. But if Lincoln is at home, he will always take my case. Yet, there's another case from 1847 that complicates this humanitarian portrait of Lincoln. Robert Madsen was a slaveholder who owned land in Coles County, where Lincoln's extended family lived. Madsen was an awful person. He had a family in Kentucky and a mistress and four children on his Coles County estate. Each year, he brought his slaves up from the Bluegrass State for the Illinois harvest. Illinois law said enslaved people whose masters domiciled them in the state were free. But Matson got around the law by claiming that his slaves were actually seasonal workers and not residents. Matson did keep one enslaved man in Illinois year-round. His name was Anthony Bryant, and he worked as an overseer for Matson. By law, Bryant was free. But his wife was not. Jane Bryant 
suffered the very worst tortures American slavery could contrive for its victims. She was the mother of six children, but as Blumenthal notes, only one was her husband's. The others had, quote, varying shades of skin color, one with blue eyes and red hair. From all appearances, Jane Bryant had been repeatedly raped. In the spring of 1847, the Bryants learned that Matson planned to sell Jane and her children to the Deep South. With the help of two local abolitionists named Gideon Ashmore and Hiram Rutherford, the Bryants fled to a nearby tavern owned by Ashmore and declared their freedom. A justice of the peace arrested them, and Jane and her children were placed in jail. Matson hired Usher Linder, Lincoln's on-and-off-again political ally, to bring Jane and her children back into slavery. Linder was unabashedly pro-slavery and had no qualms about the case. He approached Lincoln about suing the abolitionists involved for damages. Lincoln made some verbal agreement to join Linder in Matson's suit. Then Rutherford, one of the abolitionists involved, approached Lincoln. As Rutherford remembered, quote, I noticed a peculiarly troubled look came over his face now and then. His eyes appeared to be fixed in the distance beyond me, and he shook his head several times, as if debating with himself some question of grave import. Lincoln told Rutherford he had already committed to Linder, which led to harsh words from Rutherford. Evidently embarrassed, Lincoln managed to secure release from Linder and told Rutherford he would represent him. But Rutherford, who later said, quote, my pride was up, refused the offer. Lincoln returned to Linder's table, and Rutherford ended up hiring two attorneys who, ironically, were pro-slavery. The case was heard before Illinois Chief Justice William Wilson and Samuel Treat, an associate justice of the court. Lincoln argued that when Matson settled in Coles County, he, quote, publicly declared that he was not placed there for permanent settlement and that no counterstatement had ever been made publicly or privately by him. There are clashing accounts of Lincoln's performance. Orlando Ficklin, who represented the abolitionist Rutherford, thought Lincoln presented Matson's case effectively. Another account says Lincoln bungled it. At one point, this account says, Lincoln asked the judges for a habeas corpus hearing to determine whether Jane Bryant was free. Judge Treat, apparently incredulous at Lincoln's motion, pointed out that Matson intended to settle the slaves on his property in Illinois. A habeas corpus hearing would almost certainly have established that fact and cost Matson his case. The judge asked Lincoln, quote, Do you think, as a matter of law, that they did not thereby become free? Lincoln replied, quote, No, sir, I am not prepared to deny that they did. Ficklin concluded the Bryant's case by quoting from James Philpott Curran's final argument in the Somerset case, the 1772 decision that banned slavery in Great Britain, quote, No matter with what solemnities he may have been devoted on the altar of slavery, the moment he touches the sacred soil of Britain, the altar and the gods sink together in the dust. His soul walks abroad in her own majesty. His body swells beyond the measure of his chains, which burst from around him, and he stands redeemed, regenerated, and disenthralled by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation. Ficklin, 
remembered that Lincoln winced as he said this, which seems true no matter how he handled Matson's case. In the end, the Bryants were freed by the court. Matson never paid Lincoln. We must remember that Matson's goal in the case was to send a woman that he may have sexually assaulted south with her children, where early deaths almost certainly awaited them. Those with a dim view of Lincoln's racial attitudes see the case as proof of Lincoln's hypocrisy. A man who hated slavery as much as Lincoln, it is argued, would not have dreamed of defending a slaveholder. Lincoln's defenders emphasize Rutherford's account of Lincoln trapped in his legal obligations. Last time, we talked about Lincoln's reputation for being bad in cases he didn't believe in. This, perhaps, affected the Matson case. But it's equally likely Lincoln picked the best argument he could make for his client and lost. Historian Michael Burlingame sums up the case, quote, Despite his anti-slavery convictions, Lincoln accepted the Matson case in keeping with what became known in England as the cab rank rule, stipulating that a lawyer must accept the first client who hails them, and with the prevailing Whig view that lawyers should try to settle disputes through the courts, trusting in the law and the judges to assure that justice was done. In this light, the Matson case may have existed on the same spectrum as the Leggins Costley case. Lincoln would advocate for a client and submit to a court's judgment, regardless of the justice of the law. Lincoln knew African Americans in more mundane settings. Springfield was one of four Illinois cities outside Chicago that had an African American community with more than 100 people. The city's black community in the 19th century is not well understood, but it became increasingly visible in the late 1850s. The historian Richard E. Hart, who has studied Springfield's African-American population, writes that the community would annually march through Springfield on August 1st, the anniversary of British emancipation, while making music and delivering public speeches. The Lincolns lived in close proximity to this community. As Hart writes, quote, By late 20th century standards, the Lincolns lived in an integrated neighborhood. In 1860, there were at least 21 African Americans, approximately 10% of Springfield's African American population, living within a three-block radius of the Lincoln home. Mary and Abraham hired black women to work in their home, including Maria Vance and Ruth Stanton, who helped Mary cook and wash her clothes. Lincoln also appears to have hung out at William Fleurville's barbershop, a place where he could swap stories with Fleurville and other customers. Fleurville had a wonderful sense of humor, as evidenced by ads he took out in the Sangamo Journal, like this one from 1832. Quote, I, William Fleurville, emperor and autocrat of all the barbers of Sangamo, by advice and consent of my private counsel, do issue this my royal proclamation, that I continue to nullify beards at my tonsorial palace, and I do further declare that my treasury is well nigh exhausted, and I warn those individuals who may be in possession of my revenues, to transfer the same to me immediately. We don't have any contemporary accounts of the Lincolns' interactions with Vance, Stanton, Fleurville, or other African Americans in the community. Later tales of the Lincolns' relationships with blacks who worked in the White House suggest the Lincolns treated them with respect and helped them with personal troubles, but tended to keep their distance.
This makes Lincoln's support for colonization schemes all the more troubling. Colonization was supposed to be a voluntary movement funded by a private organization called the American Colonization Society, or ACS. The very best argument one can make about Lincoln's support for colonization is that he saw it, in an exceptionally blinkered way, as a kind of self-determination. As Michael Lind writes in What Lincoln Believed, quote, He passionately rejected the idea that whites had the right to rule blacks, either as slaves or as the subjects of white colonial empires. Lincoln wanted a white-only republic. But he was sincere and consistent in hoping that Latin Americans, Africans, and Asians, as well as Europeans, would one day live under republican governments of their own. Illinois had a chapter of the ACS as early as 1830, and both Illinois and Indiana established state colonization boards. Lincoln served as an advisor to the one in Illinois. After Anthony and Jane Bryant won their freedom in 1847, the ACS took over their case and raised money to move them to Liberia. William Herndon contributed money to the cause. But the ACS was usually bankrupt and known to cheat those it sent to Africa. Henry Mayer, a biographer of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, wrote that the ACS, quote, acquired its reputation for benevolence largely by hearsay and the endorsement of prominent politicians and clergymen. Ralph Gurley, an executive of the society, told African Americans to, quote, not regard our country as their permanent residence or as that country in which they will ever, as a people, enjoy privileges and blessings. Abolitionists like Garrison called colonization a white fantasy that tried to prevent a reckoning with the human and moral cost of slavery. The strongest and most obvious objection to this racist scheme was that African Americans were Americans, not Africans, a fact African Americans had to point out over and over again. In 1831, Abraham Shad, Peter Spencer, and William Thomas, three leaders of the black community in Wilmington, Delaware, wrote, quote, We are natives of the United States. Our ancestors were brought to this country by means over which they had no control. We have our attachments to the soil, and we feel that we have rights in common with other Americans. And although deprived through prejudice from entering into the full enjoyment of those rights, we anticipate a period when, in despite of the more than ordinary prejudice which has been the result of this unchristian scheme, Ethiopia shall stretch forth her hands to God. There was another objection to colonization. Liberia was a death trap. According to a study by Tom Wing Schick, more than 20% of Liberian immigrants died in their first year there, mostly from disease. As the historian Manisha Sinha wrote in The Slave's Cause, quote, A large number of colonists found disease and an early death. High mortality rates plagued Liberia throughout its existence and increased black opposition to colonization. The ACS and its supporters knew the dangers of traveling to Liberia. They didn't care. Henry Clay said that that was the price of freedom and argued that the death rate at Jamestown was higher. As Schick wrote, quote, Any problems, including those of diseases and death, were viewed as the trials and tribulations that God provides as the means of testing the fortitude of man. After every report of disaster in Liberia, the managers, 
simply renewed their efforts. The Bryants suffered terribly in Liberia. The year after they arrived, they told a visitor that they longed to return to the United States. Frederick Douglass called the ACS, quote, the deadliest foe to the colored man. Though some members of Springfield's African-American community, like the Reverend Samuel Ball, supported colonization, the vast majority stood against it. In 1858, a meeting of African-Americans in Springfield approved a resolution that said, quote, The best blood of Virginia, Maryland, Kentucky, and other states, where our brethren are still held in bondage by their brothers, flows in our veins. The resolution went on to say, quote, We are not, therefore, aliens, either in blood or in race, to the people of the country in which we were born. Why, then, should we be disenfranchised and denied the rights of citizenship in the North and those of human nature itself in the South? Lincoln should have known of these objections. He should have known about the Bryants. And yet, delivering Clay's eulogy on that summer day in 1852, Lincoln chose to look past these men and women. This was probably not malevolence, but indifference. African Americans in Illinois and elsewhere faced attacks on their humanity and a denial of their rights, and had to summon every bit of energy and stamina to endure injustice so pervasive they could breathe it into their lungs. Facing this injustice, Lincoln had the greatest privilege the country affords to a white man. He could ignore it. Next time, we'll look at Lincoln's great rival, Stephen Douglas, and how his recklessness opened the door for Lincoln's political comeback.